cliffcentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And Ramon is here as always. How are you at? Uh, yeah, I'm good in yourself. No, excellent. I think the last week's podcast is going to be one of our biggest ones yet. Yeah, with, it's uh, doing well. It's doing with, well. Uh, Prof- Professor Peterson. So, yeah, if you have heard it, let us know what you think. Yeah, it's uh, really a, a great podcast, uh, some great listening and some, some mind-blowing uh, sort of concepts. Well, yeah, I, I heard it about five times now. Yeah, so you've got some catching up to do because... By the time you hear this, Ramon's probably heard it about 10 times. No, no, no. I've, I've had my fill. We do literally like the sound of our own voices. Well, especially mine. <laughs> I find it very sexy. How's the YFM gig? Oh, well, so far so good. I mean, I'm just there for the week mm. as a testing out phase. It's like, it's like BE in reverse. They, need, they needed a white guy <laughs> with controversial opinions. I'm like, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm not sure uh, if by the time you hear this, if, if he'll still be on. It's, uh, he, he may come back if he's not, but uh, uh, Ramon has been recording on YFM every morning, so you're welcome to give him a listen. It is music radio, so they don't give you that much time to talk. No, it is music radio, but we do go through news, and I do speak a fair bit, but it's really not a podcast thing. It's a completely different uh, way of, okay. of broadcasting. Cool, and uh, you will have heard quite a few international guests now in a row um, today that's included. Uh, if you do want to hear anyone specific, please let us know. And we're working on a number of uh, high-profile guests, as always. Anything uh, anything uh, on the current sort of events that you want to chat about quickly? Uh, no, not really. Uh, okay, well, we're recording this a bit early, but I mean, in Rosettenville, there's a, the brothel's being burnt down by the community, and... The libertarian mayor says... But where will they get sex abs- now? <laughs> Not from their wives. Um, but the libertarian mayor is like now going in and raiding. And I don't know, it just feels a bit a bit unlibertarian to mm, me. Said libertarian, we are trying to get on the show, but... Uh, Difficult uh, man. He's, he has... Uh, his people have... Not him, but his people have abandoned uh, email. Uh, apparently, it's not a very libertarian principle either. Um, no, anyway, we're giving uh, Mr. Mashaba a bit of a hard time, but uh, we would like him on the show to discuss all of these things and the complexities, I suppose, of uh, running a government or a local government and uh, trying to keep things as free as possible. But uh, should we get on to today's guest? Absolutely. So today's one of my uh, personal, not, not heroes, I hate the term heroes, my personal favorite writer. I've been reading him for like a decade. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we finally got him on. So his name is Brendan O'Neill. He's the editor of spikedonline.com, which is an online magazine, like Daily Maverick, but much, much better. (laughs) Um, And he is an odd character because he's a Marxist, but he believes in like utter liberty at the same time. So we're going to discuss those weird contradictions. And our guest this week is Brendan O'Neill. Thanks so much for coming on. Welcome to the show. Hi. Yeah. Well, Brendan, I mean, so good to have you on. I've been reading you for, I think, a decade now, if not more. Wow. However long Spiked Online's been around, um, I've been there. I've, your one South African uh, reader is right here <laughs> in front of your eyes. Um, so, Brendan, interesting thing about you, you used to write for a, a magazine called Living Marxism. I think it was called mm. Living Marxism. So, and, and you do call yourself a Marxist sometimes. However, you hate the state, which is Marxist, but you also love liberty and freedom especially in terms of speech so how do you reconcile those two positions well i don't think they are necessarily contradictory and when i refer to myself as a marxist i'm always talking about early marxism i mean right back to marx himself and engels those people who were thinking and writing in the 1840s and the 1850s and if you read their original stuff it was almost entirely devoted to the idea of freedom I mean, for example, in the 1840s, when Karl Marx was very, very young, he wrote a series of essays and articles about press freedom. And I guarantee you, you will not read a finer, uh, more liberal defense of press freedom than what Karl Marx wrote back then. And if you read the work of Marx and Engels and other writers of the time, it was very much about how can we expand 
human choice and human freedom and allow people to have more pleasurable lives. That what That's what it was boiled down to. But of course, since then, not long after then, in fact, the left did completely lose the plot. Uh, particularly, that was particularly true in the 20th century. The left bit by bit moved away from trusting ordinary people to be able to run their lives and maybe even to run society towards trusting the state more than people and asking the state to govern not simply society itself in in detail but also people's lives how they speak how they behave how they relate to one another so uh, i think the left has lost it but i would always challenge the idea that being pro-state is an original left-wing idea i think in its origins the left-wing was quite naturally anti-state so so you're like a hipster marxist in a way yeah i'm like you know people when they talk about pop bands and they say oh i like them before they were popular i'm like that with with marxism i I like the early stuff before everyone else got into it that's the kind of stuff i'm into before communism destroyed it basically yes before socialism with a capital s my least favorite ideology before all before all that stuff came along and particularly state socialism which is just a complete drag on human autonomy and freedom and everything else so before all that i think the the idea of the left at the very beginning and if you go right back to the french revolution which is of course where the idea of the left comes from the people who sat on the left side of the revolutionary french assembly if you go right back to that in the late 1700s through to the mid 1800s that period of around 50 or 60 years the left in that period was pro-reason pro-freedom trusted people had an instinctive distrust of officialdom and churches and anyone else who wanted to tell people how to behave that i think was a political high point for humankind uh, but it did go downhill so i perfectly understand when people look at me now and say you call yourself left wing that means you're pro state and you're anti people and you don't like free speech because tragically that's what it means now to be left wing is it is it just that essentially the the those in power uh, always act in the same kind of way because if you're referring all the way back to the French Revolution uh, that was the kind of peasants rising up against the elite uh, more on the so-called left and now we really have a society or a world especially in the West where you could argue that the left has been in control and in power for many decades now and essentially they've become the, the elite and whether you're left or right you can't help but become this almost destructive force against uh, individuals. I think there's a lot in that, actually. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, one of the things I'm intrigued by, and I don't have an answer to this, is the question of why revolutions tend to go wrong um, and, and tend to lead to bad things. I mean, this goes right back to the English Civil War in the 1640s, which is one of my favorite moments in history, when basically you had a bunch of parliamentarians fighting against a bunch of monarchists to to institute the modern idea of democracy, in essence. And there were groups within the parliamentarian side in the Civil War, which we would these days refer to as libertarians. There were groups who they were publishing pamphlets on press freedom and they were handing them out on street corners and in their local pub saying we demand freedom of speech, we demand the right to publish whatever we want, we demand let's cut the king's head off. And then there was this moment of beautiful radicalism in the 1640s in England and of course they succeed and what happens it gives well gives rise to Cromwellism and 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 rule by Cromwell in a quite dictatorial fashion and that was a very early example of how for some reason that people haven't quite sufficiently explained revolutionary moments even very positive ones quite quickly give way to tyranny or authoritarianism or something that's not particularly pleasant and we see that from the english civil war to the french revolution obviously to the russian revolution which was the biggest downturn of all time in terms of what happened after the russian revolution in all those instances it happens so i think there's something about humankind not quite being able to see through 
on its rather lofty ambitions to make people freer and happier, something goes horribly wrong. And I think it could well be related to the fact that once you're in power and once you have the responsibility to keep the machine of government or the machine of state chugging along, then perhaps you do develop instinctively authoritarian tendencies. So that is the ultimate question of our time, I think. So, Brendan, are you largely in favor of having a state or would you consider yourself an anarchist? I'm not an anarchist, and and I do think there are some things the state probably should do. I, I mean, I make myself incredibly unpopular among my um, free market friends by suggesting that I think there are some things the state should do with the economy. I don't think it should control the economy. I'm I'm I'm, I'm opposed to the cult of welfareism, and I don't think nationalizing industry is a particularly good idea, especially now when the state is such a kind of lethargic. Uh, a backward institution that you know couldn't organize a piss up in a brewery never mind a national rail system mm, or, anything or an like operation that. In, a, in a hospital or an operation in a hospital or, or anything you wouldn't really trust it to do anything serious like that um but i do i'm not opposed to the state kick-starting investment for example i'm not opposed to the state saying we are going to build 10 nuclear power stations in the next 20 years and we invite you big businesses to come and invest and help and create work and so on. I'm not opposed to the state playing that kind of role. The problem is today that the state does not enough of what I think it should be doing and far too much of what I think it shouldn't be doing. So it doesn't do enough of saying, you know, you know, screw it. Let's build 15 new airports and 15 new nuclear power stations and create 300,000 jobs. It doesn't do enough of that, but it does far too much of coming up with new um, forms of censorship, new forms of social control, um, CCTV cameras, um, interfering in family life and giving everyone lessons on how to raise your children, interfering in education to tell people what they should be learning so they t- come out the other end as very conformist, unthinking slaves to modern capitalism and everything else. So. It does way too much of that interfering in, in personal life and speech and freedom of thought and so on, and not enough of the slightly bigger R&D ideas that it might be worth it trying out. That's my problem with the state at the moment. That sounds a lot like a Trump economic plan, to be honest. <laughs> uh, well, I hope not. I, I, I'm not a fan of Trump at all. I, I, I don't buy um, Trump's economic ideas i don't i'm not convinced that he's going to see them through in any convincing way um i'm i'm fairly happy about the fact that he does talk about such economic matters i think one of the key problems with the left today is that it's largely abandoned the question of economic equality or or even um wealth creation and job creation and all those things which really animated the left for decades and decades the modern left has completely abandoned economic questions in favor of questions of identity and protecting the environment and making sure that people are happy and and all those other various kind of very tangential ideas that was really shown up uh, there's this thing in britain called the british surveys attitude which comes out every couple of years which basically is this huge vast very interesting survey of what people in Britain think. And one was, and, and the latest one was published last week, and it showed that among young people under the age of 25, they are extremely pro-diversity. So they are utterly relaxed about your religion and your skin color and your sexuality, and they don't think anyone should be judged for anything like that. They think diversity is wonderful, and in fact, they go too far and end up celebrating divisions within society and so on. But then it also discovered that they are not, concerned at all about economic inequality or even very much about poverty Um, and i think that's really was a really interesting snapshot of how leftish youthful millennial thought has shifted away from the question that animated the right and the left for 200 years in essence which is how can we create more things and, and produce more stuff towards the question of managing relations between different groups in society, managing how we interact, managing how we speak to each other. I think that shift on the left is a real concern. Isn't that a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, though, because what the left has done is in their pursuit of diversity, they have really gone around the world looking for as many different people as they could possibly find. You know, um, they uh, would claim 
they aren't racist or they aren't bigoted in any way, but uh, they will do their best to, for example, in the UK, uh, they will very much focus on how many white people there are and then try bringing in every color in between to prove uh, how not racist they are. Um, yes. and, and, and so they've been so focused on diversity that you get this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of what you're kind of talking about um, with regards to uh, the, 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 them not fulfilling, achieving these kinds of uh, goals uh, and with, the, with regards to uh, people being very focused on diversity but, but not on any of the other stuff. Yes, I think um, there's a real problem with the focus on diversity at the moment, because what's happening is that diversity has been institutionalized as a value within it in its own right. So the, the great thing about modern Britain or about modern America or, in fact, about modern South Africa, most strikingly in many ways, is simply the fact that it's diverse, not the fact that it has overarching values, not the fact that there is a, a core idea of what the nation is and what its values are that people might subscribe to or be invited to subscribe to. Instead, we celebrate diversity for its own sake. And that has an extremely divisive dynamic. And I think one of the things I've been arguing is that is that the left and, and other sections of society are really re-racializing Society, they are re-racializing everyday life. And you can really see this on campuses in particular, which are often the kind of laboratory for ideas that will eventually become much more mainstream, where people are now divided according to their race. Um, and people are referred to very casually as white man. You know, you, sh you can't say this because you're a white man. You shouldn't say that because you're a white woman. Black people have a special understanding of certain situations that, that other people don't. There's this real um, instinct continually to box people off according to their race or their gender or their sex or some other biological accident over which people have no control. And I find that incredibly depressing because you know, one of the key arguments of progressive politics for a long period of time was that there's something higher than your skin color and your sex and your sexuality. There is something which is uh, above that. There's, there's an idea of a human family. Well, and there well, are, things, there are over, universal values. That that's how we us. got over racism was by saying you yeah. can't judge someone based on their skin color because they're a human and they're just like you with their own thoughts and ideas. Um, exactly. And now we sort of flipped over if you're on the progressive side of things. Exactly. And, and, and that's really, really dangerous, I think. And in fact, we've now reached the perverse situation where if you are anti-racist, you will be accused of being racist. So, for example, there are some campuses in America now where they have these, um, gu uh, these guidelines against using racial microaggressions. And a microaggression, as you all know, is an accidental turn of phrase or something you say in a conversation which is kind of can be interpreted as aggressive or preju prejudicial. And some campuses have uh, guidelines about what kind of racial microaggressions you should avoid. And they include things like, um, I don't see race. Um, I only see the human race. And, and they even include things like, I judge people according to what they say and think rather than according to their race. Now, of course, if that sounds familiar, that's because it was the rallying cry of the civil rights movement in America in the 1950s and 60s, yeah, and, the idea that you should Luther judge King. someone. Yeah, Martin Luther King, judge someone by their character, not the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Now, on some campuses in America, if you do that, if you do what Martin Luther King suggested we should do, you will be hauled up for committing a racial microaggression because in the words of these documents, you are denying people's racial experiences. Now, as far as I'm concerned, progressive politics used to be entirely about denying people's racial experiences and refusing to treat people as, as racial categories. So there's all this um, concern about raising racial awareness. And, and my argument to that is, well, I refuse to be racially aware. And I think people should refuse to be racially aware. Well, in, in South Africa, there's a well-known uh, intellectual that says, if you are colorblind or you don't see color, that is actually the reason why you have white privilege. Because you're so privileged <laughs> that you can't see how important race is, uh, despite making a, a conscientious effort to not see race. Is that the same intellectual that uses uh, the year as an argument? Oh, yes. It's 2017 is his favorite argument as well. But it, it's remarkable. It's, I mean, it's a self-perpetuating feedback loop. 
Yes, it's it's crazy, really. And I think that whole discussion of white privilege is really important and interesting because that demonstrates the extent to which the left and modern liberals have completely abandoned the language of class. And um, the idea that your social station is the deciding factor. So when I hear people talk about white male privilege, I always think, well, what white men are you talking about? Are you talking about the white man who who fixed your toilet Absolutely. in the morning and then drove you in a car to the radio station so you should so you could go on the radio and moan about white men? I mean, what white men are they talking about? They have no understanding of class differences so so white men get painted as this huge vast category all of them enjoying privilege even though it includes people who are absolutely broke and are not sure how they're going to feed themselves in the next week and it includes billionaires so there's that when you have this kind of broad stroke this racial um broad stroke where everyone gets painted as belonging to one racial group uh, by accident of their birth then it really undermines social differences and class differences which i think are still very important in fact i would argue that class differences even though i think class politics is dead and probably isn't coming back in that old form anytime soon class differences are i think still the the most decisive differences of all well, very much so. That's what we've been arguing on this podcast for a long time. If you look at the stats for South Africa, there's 10 million people who are deemed to be living in poverty. And then the rest are middle class and upper class. So the middle class and the upper class, there's more black people in them than white people. But pro rata, mm. there's far more poor people at the bottom than uh, more black poor people than white people. So people use that. Is there saying... Let's just look at the poor people. They say the poor black people are what's important, not yes. not all, all the people in that class. And I think class is the biggest fact, biggest problem we have in South Africa. But people keep on trying to racialize it, especially the government in charge. Yes, and 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 there's a similar. I mean, it's, it's a very different historical experience, but there's a similar dynamic in Britain at the moment where everyone wants to talk about the problem of whiteness and everyone focuses on how we can help ethnic minority groups particularly ethnic minority girls to achieve to get to university and to do to be more successful and so on but if you look at the actual statistics the people who are least likely to go to university in britain are working class white males um and and they are at the bottom of the heap educationally they are far less likely to go to university than black girls or chinese girls or, or even than black boys which is a very new development because black boys used to be uh, bottom of the bottom of the pile in the past so even though all these dramatic shifts have taken place and the white working classes are very notably being left behind from the knowledge economy and from the the new economy that supposedly has risen up in britain over the past few years even though that's happening, people still obsess over affirmative action for certain minority groups and in, and boosting the self-esteem of young girls and so on. And what happens as a consequence of that is that a certain class in society, which happens to be um, white-skinned, because a, a lot of the native working classes in Britain are white-skinned, are just utterly left behind. So there's a very cavalier, almost cruel consequence of the focus on identity politics which is that the vast swathes of society simply are not helped out because they don't fit the right identity criteria yeah so let's talk about some of what's happened as a result of a focus on that identity criteria let's start with brexit because mm. uh, we before brexit uh, correctly predicted it we, we like to say uh, we had a good year in 2016. I know the rest of the world <laughs> had a terrible year, but we, we had a good year. So Brexit uh, happened. Um, the world lost their minds. Uh, it, it was the first sort of preamble to to how you lose your mind as a journalist. I think mm -hmm. your, your colleagues uh, in all the mainstream papers sort of just lost it. There was everything from the economy is going to completely collapse to uh, Britain won't be able to trade with anyone, to we will be excluded from the entire European market, to you won't be able to travel, uh, you know, you, you, you won't be able to get kids across borders, all kinds of scaremongering. Uh, how much do you think a role the scaremongering before uh, the Brexit sort of happens or uh, influence it? And also, you know, afterwards, 
we've we've seen that most of that's been untrue. So where do you? I know you were pro Brexit, but but what mm. what's your views on on the entire process up until now? Well, Brexit, in my view, is the best thing to happen, not only in British politics, but in Western politics for the past 25 years. I mean, yeah. Brexit is the only thing in my lifetime that I would go to the barricades for. I would <laughs> I would make Molotov cocktails to defend Brexit. <laughs> I feel so deeply passionate about Brexit. And, and the reason is because it's so obvious to me, it's so clear to me and to many other people, many of the other 17 million who voted for it, that it was a democratic revolt. And, and it was an extremely rebellious act because we have to remember back, you, you just talked there about how, about the politics of fear that was used to try and convince people to vote in favor of the European Union. And so you had this intense politics of fear, this economic blackmail, these warnings of doom. Um, 80% of the political class uh, were pro EU and told us we had to vote to stay. The whole celebrity set did the same thing. 95% of top business leaders told us we should vote to stay in the EU. Every global institution on earth said the same thing. Obama, um, uh, the, the, uh, the UN, every single influential body and group, and of course all experts, said mm. you must stay in the EU or else your lives will be ruined. Yeah, well, Obama people threatened you, in fact, and, and yes. actually tried to influence your elections, you know, as other people get upset about American elections being influenced. <laughs> Exactly. He said that we would go to the back of the queue in terms of trade if we didn't stay in the EU. And in the face of all that, 17.4 million people, including vast numbers of working class people in former industrial towns in the north of England and in Wales, people who hadn't voted for a long time, they went out. They, they thought for themselves. They discussed it among themselves. There are these fabulous polls that came out just before the referendum asking people who were intending to vote leave, who do you trust most on this issue? And the media and politicians came at the very bottom. And at the top, there were things like my family, my workmates. And even on one of the polls, it said um, strangers in the street. So you had this real um, democracy in action. People were talking about it at work, at home, on the bus, with strangers. And, and they came to the decision rationally and calmly that it would be beneficial to democracy and to um, the, the idea of popular sovereignty if we voted against the EU and voted to leave the EU. So they defied establishment diktat. They defied the warnings from on high and they and they took a very democratic course of action. And what's great is that I think that's inspired people around the world. Everywhere I go now, America, Australia, Europe, Everyone wants to ask me about Brexit. People are excited about Brexit. They feel moved by Brexit. I think Brexit is the most positive idea in the world at the moment. Um, I think it's been slightly misused by Trump and it's been profoundly misused by Marine Le Pen in France, um, both of whom are, are trying to use the moral authority of Brexit to make themselves seem more progressive than they maybe are. But I think Brexit was a great break from the old politics of technocracy and it raised all these unanswered questions about sovereignty and democracy and class and so on so i think it's been absolutely wonderful and i will not hear a bad word said against brexit i mean we we tend to agree with you we were yeah. both big brexit supporters way before when the referendum referendum was announced we said no brexit must happen for for various reasons uh, all of which you you just mentioned but do you think it will actually happen? Because there's, I mean, Theresa May has come in after the fact, and, and she seems to say, you know, Brexit is Brexit, and there's no soft Brexit or whatever the case might be. It's a hard Brexit. But do you, I mean, a lot of attempts have been made to, to thwart article, the mm. article, triggering of Article 50, which is the process to exit the EU. Uh, so will it actually happen, or will it happen, but in a way that is not hard Brexit, for the lack of a better word? Yeah, well, that's the big question. I mean, there is uh, at the moment, and I, I'm always amazed that people aren't on the streets over this. But at the moment, there isn't there is an elite elitist revolt against Brexit, an elitist revolt against democracy itself against the people. So we have these extremely uh, wealthy, influential people taking court cases 
to prevent the triggering of Article 50, forcing Brexit back into Parliament so that MPs can vote on it, even though they've already voted on it on the 23rd of June, like the rest of us. Apparently, they need to have a second vote to, to, before it can go through. Um, there are there are huge there have been huge mass protests in the streets by uh, largely by the pissed off middle classes demanding that Brexit be halted, demanding that it be stopped, insisting that ordinary people didn't understand the question and so on. So there is this elitist revolt against Brexit, which I find incredibly anti-democratic. And in fact, it's rehabilitating all the old, ugly arguments against democracy. The idea that we are low information, which is another way of saying we're stupid. <laughs> the idea that um, ordinary people are beholden to demagogues and, and cannot resist the charms of demagogues. The idea that um, the education system isn't good enough to to equip people with the um, politics they need to make big decisions like this. I mean, constant a, a rehashing of all the arguments against democracy that, that have existed for the past 200 or 300 years. So we're witnessing a pretty vile turn against democracy. And as you say, as a consequence of that, it is not certain that Brexit will happen. And I do worry about that a lot. And I think we need to be extremely vigilant um, and in, extremely insistent that the people's will is acted upon. What happens? What will happen over the next few weeks will be very decisive because Brexit is now back in Parliament. Um, Theresa May is pretty insistent that it will happen, but there are lots of MPs who are trying to temper it and tame it and water it down. So mm. I think we've got to keep an eye on how that goes. I just wonder if if they sort of stop it um, from happening in any real sense how much that will kill democracy uh, and, and, and what that might do. You, you know, I don't think people will necessarily take up arms, but we, we've already seen that the Labour Party is probably dead in the UK. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think they will ever run their own government again, not in the foreseeable future at least, especially with Corbyn mm -hmm. around. Uh, I, I'm, just, I'm just interested to know, what you think in terms of, of what it might do to people and their, their faith in the system if this is ignored? Yeah, you know, a lot of people here are talking about this, the English Civil War, which is where modern England was born, This, as I was saying earlier, the 1640s Civil War. And a lot of people are talking about that. And, and some people are saying there's a whiff of civil war in the air because Britain is now pretty clearly divided between Remainers who um, and most influential people are Remainers and Leavers, which includes vast numbers of ordinary people who normally don't engage with politics. But mm. from now on, they will be. Mm. So there is a, a divide. It is reminiscent of divides in the past that turned violent. So I don't think there's going to be a new civil war. But I do think that there is a tension under all this. There is there is a conflict. It's just not been honestly expressed. Um, and I, I'm very interested in that. And, and I, I think the consequences, if Brexit was not pushed through, the consequences for democracy would be completely disastrous. And not only in Britain, I think it would have a repercussions across Europe. Uh, because what it would say is that ordinary people cannot be trusted to make these decisions. And therefore, maybe democracy is not such a good idea. And the reason they are, the reason the, the elites in Europe, across Europe, are so terrified of Brexit is because it did this wonderful thing. It really ripped away the insulation that the political class has put around it over the past few decades in order to protect it from popular opinion. You know, really since the Second World War in particular, almost every political initiative from governments in Europe has been to insulate themselves from popular opinion, whether it is through developing the idea of expertise and that certain decisions should be made by experts, the rise of quangos, the rise of the, the, the judiciary and its intervention in political questions, and of course the rise of the EU, which was the most the clearest bureaucratic expression of this insulation of the political class from the plebs. And what Brexit has done is that it starts to chip away at that insulation. It starts to rip away all these various filtering mechanisms, which meant that ordinary people's opinion, popular opinion, often didn't reach the political class and didn't influence politics. So, so Brexit is a wonderful step forward for democracy and a wonderful step backward for all these un undemocratic technocrats 
who had shaped a whole new kind of politics in the post-war period. That's why they're terrified of it. And that's why it's so important that we defend it and ensure that it does actually happen. I mean, I, I like, I like that, that, that term you use about the insulation of the political class. However, I, I think the biggest culprit has been the media in all of this. I mean, uh, you, you're quite a fierce critic of Obama, uh, but, mm. the, but the media loved him. I mean, the media didn't have uh, any, any way of ensuring that he received bad news somehow or other. Mm. Uh, I mean, Trump's been in power for three weeks. They're already making porn movies about him, right? <laughs> Imagine having a porn movie of Obama. You'll be called all sorts of things. Um, yes. so, but the media as well, it has insulated the political class from from what people are actually thinking, and then that's when you get Brexit and Donald Trump being being voted in. So, as a journalist yourself, Brendan, I mean, do you see yourself? You're independent, of course, but is the media space extremely tenuous at the moment? Yeah, I have a big problem with the media at the moment, with the modern media, and 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 with the role that it plays. And I think it the media has become a wing of the establishment in many ways, and it is losing its independence. And I find the coverage of Trump just utterly, utterly mind-blowing and extraordinary. I, I can't remember anything as hysterical as this in, in recent years. The way in which the majority of the Western media, I think 91% of media coverage of Trump uh, is negative, which is utter, which is extraordinary. Um, and uh, it's and the language they use, they talk, you know, they're continually dredging up the 1930s and using words like fascism and making these kind of sly references to the Holocaust, as if Europe and America and the rest of the world is being plunged back 80 years to, you know, to the darkest moment in human history. Just these wild exaggerations, completely over the top, um, no sense of rationalism or objectivity or measuring things and thinking calmly about things. And that's because the media had been so wedded in many ways to the old establishment and to the old technocratic elites, which had governed things pretty much with free reign for 30 or 40 years. They were so intimately linked with those elites and so favorable of them that they, um, uh, they've lost the plot. Now that those uh, those old establishments find themselves on the back foot and find that huge numbers of the population reject their ideas and reject the way they run society. So the, the fury of the media at the moment, I mean, the media would argue, you know, we are very anti-Trump. We're very critical. He's the most powerful man in the world. This demonstrates how brave we are and how willing we are to criticize politicians. But in my view, it demonstrates the exact opposite, which is that they had been so intimately linked to the old political class that they are now basically fighting to delegitimize and denormalize the democratic choices made by the people of Britain and the people of America. And they're doing that through constantly waging a war of words on Brexit day in, day out. And by saying that we shouldn't normalize Trump because he's an aberration. He's not a legitimate leader. He doesn't make sense. So th that, I think, confirms how utterly wedded they'd become to the old establishment. So I think – and this is why, of course, people in Britain and America and elsewhere no longer trust the media. You know, the media is always saying, why are people going online and looking for other sources of information and in the process sometimes being fed uh, false information? Well, the, the answer to that question is very obvious. It's because the media has made itself untrustworthy through and allowing itself to become so intimately bound up with the political establishment. Yeah, well, it's in interesting the way you put that. Uh, you know, a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of what's happened, the rise of Breitbart, for example, as a, as a news network, I don't think that would have been possible uh, 10, 20 years ago, simply because mm. I think it would have been rejected. I think people would have found that the news they had was relatively balanced and, and that they didn't really feel they needed something that was so far opposite to what they were being told. Uh, now, you know, we've there are examples daily of high-profile reporters for CNN, the New York Times, Washington Post, all these sort of uh, top uh, media organizations who are actively campaigning uh, on behalf of politicians on their side, basically, and usually that's, that's on the left side of things. Uh, so so we've, we've got a lot of that going on. I'm just interested to know, before the elections, 
the reporting on Trump was largely negative. So the argument that they were fighting a most powerful man was a false argument then. I think it's still a bit of a false argument now. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and there is nothing brave about preaching to a whole bunch of people you agree with yeah. about things you agree with. I mean, it's the Middle Street example. There was nothing brave about a liberal standing up in front of a room of liberals and saying liberal things. Uh, you know, in, uh, inverted, yeah. I'm putting liberal in inverted commas there. Um, how long do you think we are before they stop doubling down? Uh, because it would appear to me that instead of stepping back and, as you say, looking at things in a rational, measured sort of way, trying to be objective and say things like, oh, look, Donald Trump issued an immigration ban. It actually isn't about Muslims. It's, it's, it's got to do with uh, with with uh, immigration. <laughs> you know, it mm-hmm. happens to include some Muslim countries. But instead of going wild, they just double down and they, they sort of just run with you know, Muslim ban as, as, as for example, one, yeah. one thing. Is there any point at which you think the media industry sort of steps back, resets, and goes, all right, we've, we've lost the plot here. Um, let's change. Uh, you know, I was just having that precise conversation with someone yesterday uh, here in London, and uh, I'm not sure what the answer to whether whether that's going to happen anytime soon or not. My feeling is that things are so intense right now that it's it's just difficult to tell. But I, I, the argument I'm having with the media here is that I, I cannot remember a time like now when it was as hysterical as it is right now. But everything Trump does is flagged up as evidence of his insanity and his fascism and his craziness and his illiberalism and his contempt for the press. You know, I get into arguments with journalists all the time. They say things to me like, um, Trump is the worst president ever when it comes to press freedom. He despises the press. And I said to them, well, what about Woodrow Wilson, who in the 1910s signed in both the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act, which expressly forbade media outlets from publishing scurrilous or defamatory or ridicule about the government? So news, I mean, the most extra- the news exactly the most extraordinary intervention into press freedom, and then people say, oh well, you know, well Trump has just got a crazy temperament; he's not measured enough to be president. And then I say, well, what about Richard Nixon, who in the early 1970s went completely paranoid and was known to stalk the White House at three in the morning, making policy about Cambodia. Uh, literally at three in the morning, he would decide what the next stage of the bombing of Cambodia should be. So what I mean is that what's lost is any sense whatsoever of historical perspective, any sense that actually there have been crazy American presidents before. Actually, there have been attacks on press freedom before. And a lot of them, you know, these people complaining about them now turned a blind eye to them in the recent past. There have been um, American presidents have done crazy things overseas before. People are forgetting all this stuff. It's, it's, there's a historical amnesia, which I think I find quite Orwellian. It's like everything in the past is shoved down the memory hole. And, and Trump and all we have is Hitler in the 1930s and Trump uh, in 2017. And in between, everything was OK. I mean, this is literally the narrative that some people would like us to accept. So it, it is really unhinged and, and deeply, deeply worrying. Um, so I don't know whether the media is going to get a grip anytime soon. My feeling is that things will get worse for a while. But then I think and I've already started to spot this. There will be a handful of voices saying, what the hell is going on here? This makes literally no sense. And so the more that those voices come out, the more we can do to cultivate them, the more um, chance we have of getting politics back onto a level field. Yeah, I mean, my favorite story, uh, they, they, keep t- they keep telling me that Donald Trump is extremely racist uh, with, mm. with, with no evidence whatsoever. But uh, Jesse Owens won three gold medals in front, in, front of, in front of Hitler, and FDR refused to acknowledge that when Jesse yes. Owens returned back from the Berlin Games. But FDR exactly. is seen as a hero of the left, uh, despite uh, you know, imprisoning 100,000 Japanese American citizens and refusing to acknowledge Jesse Owens. I mean, all this has been done before, much worse, by their yes. own heroes, and no one knows about it. It is quite amazing. Exactly. It's, a, it's amazing, and it's, 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 it's quite Stalinist, actually. 
it, there's almost not necessarily a conscious, but there's a semi-conscious airbrushing of history. Um, so the, the more that they say Trump is abnormal and an aberration and, and unacceptable, the more that they implicitly or explicitly normalize everything that came before him. That was all reasonable in comparison to Trump, who is the great unreasonable leader. So there's a real whitewashing of history. And, and you, you know, you don't even have to go back to, to Wilson or to FDR or to Nixon. You only have to go back to Obama. Um, you know, people are now saying, oh, my God, uh, Trump is going to bomb countries and, and, and cause global instability. And I have to almost stop myself from laughing because it's not even funny when you consider the kind of instability that was created by Obama and Clinton in various different ways and the actions that they took, the thoughtless actions that they took. In the British newspapers yesterday, they were full, as they have been for weeks now, of anti-Trump stuff. Trump is crazy. Trump is unstable. Trump is mad. And then around page 15 or 16 in some of these newspapers, there was a report about a new UN study which showed that last year, in 2016, the number of deaths, civilian deaths in Afghanistan rose quite dramatically. And it said in really small print, which no one noticed, that in one of those incidents involved an American strike on a home, on a family home, which killed uh, 12 women and 20 children. And it's and and so I was saying this to my friends, and I was emailing people, and I said, "Did you know this? Did you know that under Obama, 20 children were killed in one airstrike in Afghanistan last year?" And they just don't know. They actually don't know what happened because there is this self that they 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 kind of have this um, pro Obama filter. So any bad news about Obama just doesn't get through to them. Whereas every bad thing about Trump flies straight in and is, is believed instantly. So there's a deeply uncritical climate at the moment. And I think the Trump hysteria is really setting media debate and political debate back by years and years. Uh, let's talk a bit about Obama, because uh, for some reason he's seen as some, some global hero. Well, mostly. Well, first of all, I mean, he, he had legislation that he had a kill list of American citizens that he, he could kill without due process whatsoever. So he woke up in the morning, had his eggs, and there was a kill list, and he just ticks off who he wants to be droned on that particular day. And, and let us not forget, he bombed, by mistake or not, a, a hospital in the middle mm -hmm. of Aleppo with, with uh, I think that was in Pakistan. Oh, was, it, was it Pakistan? Yeah. My mistake. But, I mean, he bombed weddings in Yemen, you know, 150 dead, mm -hmm. two or three of them. He bombed hospitals. He, I mean, it's, it is absolutely ridiculous. 26,000 bombs over the course of, of his uh, second term. Uh, why does no one seem to care? But if you ban... Muslims say it is a Muslim ban. If you do ban them, that is far more egregious. It's 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 extraordinary. I mean, the only explanation for it is that um, people are in the grip of almost a hysteria about Trump. I mean, it's the only and hysteria is an extremely strong word that should not be used lightly. But I, I can think of no other explanation for for what you've just very accurately described, which is that Obama did numerous, numerous terrible, destructive things around the world. And uh, and yet when he's leaving office, people are crying and posting memes of him, uh, you know, hugging Michelle and, and, you know, with his baseball cap on backwards and saying, we're going to miss you, Barack, and all this stuff, <laughs> despite all the stuff that he did. Whereas um, Trump passes a temporary three-month ban on, on people from seven Muslim-majority countries. By the way, I don't think the ban is necessary. I'm, I'm opposed to it. Yeah, as, it as, as are we. Right. But it, so it's, you know, it's, it's not I, – I just think it was rash, and I think it was about gesture politics. It was about appearing to be strong, yeah. and it did cause yeah. immediate problems for a large number of people. So I don't think it's a good thing. He's appealing but to his is, base. It, exactly. And, and – but it is just not comparable to what some of the things Obama did. And yet Trump's executive order is held up as evidence that he is um, Hitler in the making. Whereas Obama's bombing of hospitals or his arming of groups in Syria that went on to become Islamist groups that beheaded a 12-year-old child. Or his administration's bombing in Libya, which destabilized vast swathes of northern Africa, causing hundreds of thousands of refugees to go from Libya into Tunisia, in in intensifying the conflict in Mali, because lots of armed groups moved from Libya 
back to Mali and even intensifying the conflict in Nigeria, where lots of Libyan weaponry leaking out of post-Gaddafi Libya made its way into Nigeria. So the whole of North Africa destabilized by Obama, Clinton and Samantha Power. People just overlook that or they don't care about it. It's extraordinary. Trump um, issues a statement or makes a speech and everyone says, look, there's Adolf Hitler. So I, I think the only explanation is that they are in the grip of this. What I think is happening is that the political set, that kind of, you know, liberal elite, for want of a better phrase, I know that's not the most useful description, but that liberal elite feel very lost at the moment. They feel very disconnected. They feel very wounded because in Britain and America in particular, they've been rejected by ordinary people. They, they don't know what they're for. They don't know what they're doing. They are very confused and they are looking for a simple moral narrative, something that will give them a bit of clarity. And what they've landed upon is Trump is evil. Everyone who, po- who opposes Trump is good. And, and as I wrote in a piece for The Spectator today, it, it, that's the morality of the nursery. It's this very juvenile moral code, which they cling on to because they feel so unanchored at the moment. So I think there's a lot going on behind the Trump hysteria, but it's so important to call it out. And I've spent the past three weeks being accused of being pro-Trump and a fellow traveler of fascism and an apologist for the new Hitler, simply because I've devoted a lot of my time to saying Trump is not Hitler. Please calm down. But I think that's the most important argument that progressives mm. need to have right now. The the response, in my view, the response to Trump is far worse than Trump himself. Yeah. So you know, you mentioned the Hitler stuff, and 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 I, I agree with you on that. You also, I thought uh, quite poignantly, in one of your Facebook posts, uh, mentioned that. Um, the six million Jews who were killed in the Holocaust are not your playthings. Uh, mm. And I, I, I fully agree with that. Um, I think I, I also feel like this is just a giant crying wolf episode. So thus far, we've got, you know, two, three weeks of, of President Trump. Uh, he really has done very little. There's obviously headline grabbing executive orders in terms of, you know, TPP's gone, which is probably not a bad thing uh if you you know if you if you buy the free trade argument then i'm not a big fan of tpp anyway um but you know tpp's gone the immigration order was probably the biggest sort of faux pas even if it was a good idea you want to argue it was very poorly executed mm-hmm. uh and and you know a couple of other things he's not funding abortion overseas and all the rest of that uh but but the, there's very little the man has done uh, but if you <laughs> If you then take the media argument and not the, just the media argument, general public as well, what we're being told by celebrities uh, who seem to be the new commentators of our society <laughs> for some reason. I don't know why people who can act or people who can do voices or whatever it is suddenly are the, the arbiters of, of, of moral, uh, mm. sort of the moral compass. Um, the problem is, is, is we, we are losing our minds every time he literally tweets and then yeah. he will do something bad. There is no doubt. Uh, you can find, uh, you know, Ramon was talking about all the bombs Obama dropped. And the truth be told is the common argument to that while Obama was around in the, his first term was but George Bush. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you look at George Bush, you, the argument would be but Bill Clinton. The, the truth is, is that America has a certain way of treating the world and a certain policy. And you can't really change the State Department overnight, although it does look like Trump is trying. Uh, but, mm. but, but I, I just wonder uh, how dangerous it is that we will never notice when he actually does do something bad because we'll be fatigued by, by the time we get there. Yeah, I think that's a real concern. Um, the, the, you know, the hysteria that greets every tweet he writes or every statement he puts out or every fairly minor um, action he takes, which is, you know, most of them so far have been relatively minor in, in the in the scheme of things, yeah. historically speaking. Yeah. Every one of them is greeted as as a sign of the new Hitler. So, you know, if he does something that Obama did and bombs the country and kills lots of people, you know, what are we going to call that? And how how much further can you push the language? I I, I find the the Hitler analogy and, and the discussion of the Holocaust. I, I 
I find it really deeply repulsive, actually. I don't think it's funny at all, and I don't think it's acceptable at all. Um, and, and my main problem with it is that um, it, it actually contributes to this idea which is quite pronounced among the far right in particular, and also among uh, extreme Islamists, which is that the Holocaust was not all that special. That the that the uh, we exaggerate um, the horror of the Holocaust and we treat it as being too unique, and and we accord it too much historical gravity. That's always been the argument of far right anti semites and holocaust deniers. and also holocaust deniers of course and also um islamist groups in particular which over the past 20 years or so have argued that you know things like holocaust memorial day must also include muslim genocides because they have this kind of competitive desire to chip away the gravity and the uniqueness of the holocaust in the experience of the jews and and when you say that uh, another Holocaust is around the corner or Trump is the new Hitler or as one of the placards in, in the London protest said, um, Trump sounds like Hitler. We all know how this ends. What you're doing, what you're really doing is saying that the Holocaust is a pretty routine experience um, and that it wasn't an historically specific, um, unique act of barbarism, probably the greatest crime in history. It wasn't that. And we it haven't advanced that, as a society at all that we would yes. allow people to be loaded onto trains or planes and be sent to concentration camps to their death. That in exactly. almost a, well, not a hundred, but 80 years or whatever it is now, we literally have moved not one iota forward as a, as a, yes. as a society, which can't be true. It can't be true. It's just utterly unfeasible and un, un, unreasonable and hysterical. I mean, it's genuinely hysterical. And, and, and what it does is it sends the signal that the Holocaust um, is not special. And, and, and I think the, the spin-off from that is they're actually fueling um, certain ugly prejudices that exist in Europe in particular in relation to the Holocaust. They're playing with fire. Um, and, and it's a very, very dangerous game because it does two things. Firstly, it obscures what was specific about history. It makes it harder to understand history. And also it, it obscures or, or mystifies what's going on today. And it makes it seem more terrible than it actually is. So it, it, it mystifies the past and it mystifies the present. And it really makes people incapable of understanding what's actually going on so i think their exploitation of the holocaust in response to things you know pretty mild things that trump has done is really really irresponsible i mean we i don't think we can disagree with that on at that. all so brendan <laughs> so just to, to to finish off so the antidote to all this is obviously spiked online right mm -hmm. i'm sure mm -hmm. you would agree with me um definitely when you um what 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 do people if people do click through from this interview what what do you want them to see there at spiked online specifically i want them to see a publication which believes in freedom and reason and a publication which sees itself as ca as carrying on the arguments of the very early left which is the idea that people should be freer and wealthier and uh, that's obviously easy to say, but what that means on those two fronts is that on the freedom front, you have to argue against all forms of censorship and all hate speech laws and all um, campus clampdowns on controversial speakers and all new forms of conformism, which encourage self-censorship and so on and so forth. So it's a real continual battle to demand freedom of thought, freedom of speech, moral autonomy in everyday life, an end to smoking bans, an end to licensing laws on booze and everything else. So on the freedom front, we're continually arguing against censorship and social control in order to allow the human spirit to flourish more and allow people to take meaningful responsibility for their lives by being free and making choices. And then on the other front, in terms of making people wealthier, which is the other thing that the left used to want to do and which Spike still wishes we could do, you need to argue against things like not only the lack of ambition and the, the slothfulness of the modern Western economy and of, of institutions like the EU in particular, but also against the politics of environmentalism, against the idea that human progress has been a bad thing, against ideas like sustainable development in Africa, which too often means no development, 
against the idea that China and India having more stuff is going to pollute the world and it's utterly unacceptable. So, so what I think they will find on Spide is uh, a website that believes that that trusts ordinary people to run their own lives, which wants ordinary people to have richer more fulfilling lives but which recognizes that in order to get those things you have to argue day in day out against all the new modern pc supposedly liberal trends of censorship and environmentalism and the new authoritarianism and all those things so i i think they'll find a website that's positive about the potential of humanity but is pretty ruthlessly critical of all the people who stand in the way of that. Can I, can I ask you to expand a little bit on the climate politics? Uh, and obviously mm. that, that part about sustainable development in Africa, I think is absolutely on the mark. Uh, what's your, what's your take on, on, on that? My take is that the politics of, env- I'm not a climate change denier as such. I, I, I recognize or I accept that their humanity has had some kind of impact on the climate or, or you know, pollution is something that we should think about and and think about fixing. But I think the politics of environmentalism has largely emerged as an argument against economic development and against economic growth and against progress. It's, It's the modern means for arguing that we should know our place, that we should not um, venture too f- much further into nature, that we should not build too much, that we should not develop too much. It's, it's a liberal sounding justification for a lack of development. And I think that's what environmentalism fundamentally represents. So I am, I'm utterly opposed to the politics of environmentalism, not because I want to see us trash nature. I think the more measures we can take to offset, um, the pollution we cause, the better. But I recognize that environmentalism is really about low horizons for humanity. It's really about keeping us in the stasis that we're currently in rather than thinking about how we might grow and expand the human footprint so that more and more parts of humanity are included in it. And, you know, just to come back to what we were talking about at the start, about um, the the, the left in its origins, I, I always encourage people, including people on the right, to read the Communist Manifesto. Um, which um, Marx and Engels wrote when they were very young, in, like in their 20s. And people are always surprised because the first 10 pages or so uh, are devoted to praising the new capitalist class and talking about how they have achieved wonders that outdo ancient Rome. And it talks about how they have civilized backward tribes. I mean, it's very un-PC. It talks about how they've instituted global trade, broken down national barriers, they produce more stuff. They transport it around the world. I mean, it goes on and on, praising and praising. That's the kind of um, thing that the left used to be interested in. How can we expand the human footprint? How can we have more production, more development, more growth, more wealth? And um, I think the left has given up on that, but it can't admit that it's given up on that. So it dresses it up in the language of saving the planet. Sure. Well, yeah, saving the planet, yes. I I fully agree. Uh, Brendan, I do think you have disproved the fact that you're a Marxist. Uh, You sound sound a bit like a a, libertarian. I don't know. I have to say, I think you're a right-wing conservative, (laughs) frankly. Oh, wow. I think we could put you and Ben Shapiro in the same room and you'd get on like a house on fire. No, but, but Brendan's not a moralist. No, he's not a moralist, but uh, I'm I'm pro- yeah, I'm pro-choice, so we'd have a big argument. Me and Ben Shapiro would have a yeah, big argument on that. It's his single blind say, spot, but, but he's, he's pretty good at other stuff. <laughs> but I should say, that the one thing I would always... I always say this to people, and they, they get a bit confused, which is that, in my mind, there is not a contradiction between being a Marxist and a libertarian. And, you know, in fact, when I go to America, when I do talks in America, they, they understand that in America more far more than people understand it in Europe. They recognize that, you know, in the original Marx or the early Marx or the uh, the very early left, there was a very strong libertarian streak. And so I, I do call myself a Marxist libertarian partly to wind people up because I know it confuses <laughs> and outrages yeah. them. But at the same time, I would insist until the day I die that there is not necessarily a contradiction between those two things. And in fact... They could complement each other. I just haven't entirely worked out how, but I'm sure I'll get there. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, 
we need to do our own research now on uh, the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> you must read it. <laughs> I've read some parts. It's, they're very difficult uh, people to read. I must be honest. But yes, uh, we'll, we'll, can, yeah. we'll, we'll Marx is a bit tedious. It's it's very nineteenth century. So <laughs> once you get around that, you'll be all right. Fair enough, Brendan. Uh, really, uh, thank you. A great honour to have you on the show. Thanks so much. And uh, everyone listening, please follow him on Facebook. The rants are superb. That's amazing. Yeah, you you uh, are are definitely one of my favourite commentators on on Facebook. Obviously, <laughs> we good. can uh, find uh, your content and all of the Sparked Online content at spark-online.com. Uh, highly, highly recommend it. I think Ramon, well, he's uh, your first uh, your first site visitor. So, well, yes, when the <laughs> started. Uh, Brendan, sorry, one last thing before you go. Why on earth are you not on Twitter? I I, I, don't, I just can't handle Twitter. And also, well, the main reason is I wrote a column about this about five years ago. I have a very short temper and I, I often say things and email things that I probably shouldn't. And so the thought of me having a, a, an app on my phone that would allow me to say something to the whole world with a click of my thumb is too terrifying to contemplate because I know I would say stuff that I would regret instantly. So basically, I, I trust humanity, but I don't trust myself. So I have to kind of hold back from Twitter. I can't handle that. You're missing out on a lot of fun. <laughs> to wind up people with two words on a screen, it, it, it gives me, yes. Look, uh, anonymous account. Uh, <laughs> it gives me a fizz. In my an anonymous stomach. account. Come on. You can, uh, you can join the fun. I'll think about it. I'll right. think about it. Great. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we, are, we hope to chat to you again uh, once Brexit has gone through and your country is once again free to govern itself. Thanks very much, guys. Cheers, eh? Thank you. Well, uh, another another great chat with a with a really great, interesting guest. Another international guest. We are going global. <laughs> well, uh, that's uh, all from the Renegade Report this time round. You can like us on Facebook. That's uh, our page, the Renegade Report, and on Twitter at Renegade underscore Report. You can find Ramon on Twitter at Roman Kabanek and myself at Jonathan underscore Wit. We will catch you next time. Rate us on iTunes, tell us, tell your friends about us, and thanks so much for listening. Cheers. Cliffcentral.com